I'm Lisa Bontesumi, and this is the Ath Mindset podcast series on sports epreneur. This podcast series is a space for conversations with athletes, coaches, practitioners, and stakeholders in sports. And it's where those individuals share their perspectives, experiences, and thoughts on mental health in sports. Eric Kazimoff of Sports Epreneur is generously hosting the Ath Mindset podcast series on his platform as he deeply believes that these conversations are essential and deserve to be prioritized. This is the Ath Mindset podcast series on Sports Epreneur. Sports Epreneur, the content platform where sports, entrepreneurship, and mental health collide. If you are looking to start a podcast or create original content, you have to talk with the team at Sports Epreneur. I work with them and I vouch for them. It's that simple. Go to sportse.io to learn more. You are Dr. Stacy Kratz. I mean, you are a professor. You are an athlete advocate. You are part of the executive team of the Alliance for Social Workers in Sport. I mean, there's a lot of things that you do. And you have many ideas. You're a multidimensional human and are doing some amazing things in our world. So tell me, where did this all start? What got you inspired to impact the athlete space and to just show up fully to that? Oh my gosh, Liz. Well, first of all, it's really fun to be here. And I just think about all the work you're doing and roads you're opening. And I mean that, like, it's just a pleasure to watch you and see where you're going. And I just want to learn. I keep wanting to learn from you, you know, just like. Oh, thank you. Oh my God. That's very humbling. And I really, really appreciate all of that. And I mean it. I really do mean it. So, yeah. So I teach at USC in the Suzanne DeVore Peck School of Social Work. And I've been there for 11 years. I actually was invited to go to USC to teach a class then. I was a clinician for the Air Force at McDill Air Force Base. It was actually, yeah, it was actually where I did my MSW internship, my practicum. And that's how I got involved with the my major at USC. I mean, at McDill was Dr. Anthony Hassan, and he was part of opening up the Center for Military Family Social Work at USC. And so he invited me over to come and teach a class. And that was so, at first in my head, I wanted to say no, because I don't know if you know this. I used to teach little French kids how to speak English. I did not know that. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. In France and Brittany. And I was really bad. I was horrible and I couldn't stand it. And I was handed my head. I will never be a teacher. Never, never, never. And so when Dr. Hassan asked me to come over, my initial knee-jerk reaction was, no way. Mm -hmm. But of course, I couldn't say that. And so I said, sure. Yes, sir. (laughs) So I'm really grateful for that because that did happen. And anyway, so that's how I got to USC. That's amazing. I do want to pause and highlight that. That there are many people in this world and women... I have to say that will not push through their adversity and not take that chance. But you're an example of someone who recognized your knee-jerk reaction and then went against it, even maybe in fear or respect at first, but then look where it gets you. You taught a class and now you've been a professor for 11 years. I mean, that's amazing. A lot of people are going to benefit from you telling that that like our original sort of fears or even traumas don't keep us from moving forward and learning more about about ourselves and helping people. So thank you so much for sharing that. You know, Lisa, that is amazing that you highlighted that because I never thought of it in that way. Mm -hmm. And that's something that's a theme in your work because Mm -hmm. you keep saying yes, right? And I actually have a personal mantra that says, say yes whenever I can, whenever I can. And and just say yes, just go and just say yes. So sometimes that gets me in a little bit of trouble, but but on the average, it's been amazing. But before I came to USC, and even as I continued my work at USC, I do much community work. Mm -hmm. I love that aspect of working at USC because I can do that as well. I can build it in and there's support there for that. And then I, like you, 
do a lot more because that's just where my heart goes. It's just, Mm -hmm. I actually have a visual in my brain and it's a magnet. First time I'm saying this out loud. Oh, Liz, you're good. I literally have this magnet in my brain that brings me to sport and athletics and building it to, I really think of it in terms of building strong communities. And I know you've heard me say that before, but I cannot imagine having advocacy and activism in a community that doesn't involve sport and athletics. In my mind, they have to be together. They have to. And I'm not the only mind, of course. And of course, we have great global leaders, past and present, that are saying the same thing, especially like when we think of the famous quote by Nelson Mandela about the power of sport and bringing people together and keeping us grounded and building peace and justice. We can do that at every level of sport and athleticism. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. But not everyone, not everyone has that passion or this magnet. Like how was yours developed, do you think? Or how did you discover it? A couple different ways. Like, so like this, nothing's ever so siloed, right? It's like all these things happening in our lives. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in a, a very large family in Chicago on the South Side. And I was always interested in sport, always. We never put adjectives like athletic, like in the same sentence as who am I? But I always had a drive to play. And so I always was doing things with Chicago Parks District, never on formal teams until I got in sixth grade where I played on a basketball team and the coach was phenomenal. It was just really fun. Can you imagine me sixth grade? You know, like I was- It must have been so cute. I loved it so much. It was so fun. It was so, so fun. And a boss lady back then. So yeah. It was horrible. Oh my God. But I had so much well, fun. Yep. Yep. And then I really loved volleyball Mm. and I was on the volleyball team in eighth grade. And then in high school, I really went into tennis full on. And that's Mm. really my sport now, tennis. And I've picked up pickleball, which is really fun. So fun. I played it too. It's amazing. I could go off about like (laughs) the promise of pickleball for communities. Okay. So in the meantime, so there were eight kids in my family. And in the meantime, wow. my brothers were playing sports and then moving into the D1 world and a lot of golf and water polo and football. And so, mm-hmm. but really then it was never, and I don't say this with any animosity or any regret, but it wasn't part of our trick to like get involved in the collegiate space for sport. It just, it just wasn't. It mm-hmm. You know how you hear some people talk about like college just wasn't, it wasn't talked about. It wasn't a thing. Yeah. That's how it was for me with sport. Yeah. But I was always playing and interested. And then of course I started having my own children. And then it was like, okay, now I kind of see this world. I'm getting it. I have children that moved into the global space, space with sport and athleticism. So that was like going on the ride. At the same time, as I'm a professional social worker working in the community and yes. in multiple levels of like direct practice, clinical practice, including individual therapy and group therapy, and also case management and project management and supervisory roles, you know, like all those things that we do as social workers. Mm-hmm. One of those things was working with refugees. And we had a strong, her name is Janet Blair, an amazing leader in our state of Florida for community involvement with the refugee population. And they're a refugee Olympic team. And I was like, what? Wow. Never heard of that. Yeah. You know, like, and so yeah. once you start going in there and then you're thinking, okay, we have all these children and youth in our refugee spaces how are they using sport to come together to overcome those boundaries, those literal boundaries and borders that they've mm-hmm. experienced throughout their lives? But they, and they come to America and we say, welcome. And guess what? You know what works really great? Panama soccer ball. Mm-hmm. And then that is like a big, huge hug of welcome. Let's mm-hmm. go play. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's really when I got into the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports. And that was about five years ago. And that was really expanding the use of sport in the refugee community and what we could do with that in Tampa Bay, Florida. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. And such amazing human work. Yeah. What do you think makes it, I mean, you know, I'm I'm biased, but 
I'd love to hear your take on it or the way you describe it. The role of social workers in sport, you know, we've talked about a little bit, like what do you see our current role and the future role of social workers in sport from all those levels, from the policy, advocacy, research, clinical, programming, planning space. Like we're trained in so many different areas and our values and ethics land in so many different areas. But like, what do you see is the unique contribution we can make? I think our future is so bright, which means that the future of our communities continues to just this bright light. I think that social work is so uniquely positioned because of our world that's so varied in communities from individual, you know, how we call it, micro practice, one-on-one working with the person that's in front of you to then bring it out to the family and to the community and family in a big, huge definition, like the people that are important and making a difference in each individual's lives and then moving it out to community. And then we automatically are involved with policy advocacy as well, because we know that this idea of change and cultural change has to have a policy component because to me, policy is really about allocation of resources and how we divide up. And we have to do that from a legal stance because a legal and policy advocacy position. So so I was just thinking about like the unique role of social work and the view of social work in focus on social justice. And that's from an individual level all the way up to the policy level. And social Mm -hmm. justice is really building a more fair and more just society, Mm -hmm. more fair and more just. And that means that takes into equity and inclusion and valuing the promise of diversity and making sure that people belong. Mm -hmm. That's what it means to me. We can use the sport and athletic arena to increase that. And we do. And we have. We have so many examples. I think the window is wide open. I think we have a lot of lessons we learned from Black Lives Matters and the power and the strength to build strong communities, honoring all through this lens that all have not been invited to the table in the past. And we got to fight to make it more wide open. Yes. Thank you. Super inspiring. I love all of it. I mean, the allocation of resources, super important from a policy level to create policies, to be an act of social justice, to have a policy that isn't just there written and no one knows about it and it's hidden in documents in some building that no one will ever go to. Mm-hmm. But it's like, what does it represent in how we bring things together? Because not just between you and me, but I'll just say right now, like we know it hasn't always been just. We know it always has been. There's lots of situations where it's been unequal, unfair, mm-hmm. exclusionary. Mm-hmm. This time of COVID coming out of it, there's been a lot of acts of inequity from a personal and community and world space. What is the work that still needs to continue? You know, I think it will always be work to continue, but what do you think is the work right now? Like, and who are the allies with us in this work? Yeah. I love that. Like, because we have to like expand their opportunity to advocate and their allyship to make it stronger. I think that... Many cities around the country are honing in on their parks and recs departments. Hmm. So including in Tampa, Florida, for instance, the mayor there is really bolstering up the work of the parks and rec. I like to see the work of City Lab and how they're addressing that. City Lab is the Bloomberg initiative that uh, is all over the world mm-hmm. and really highlighting the importance of space to coming together and equity for that. So I like that. I am worried about families that are cut out of the picture with sports and athletics because of cost. I'm very worried about that and I'm paying attention. And I I live that with a personal in my own family that I grew up in and then my family that I raised with my children and then families that I work with in the community that as soon as you get to a certain level, there's an amazing amount of pressure to pony up and pay for private services. And that is extremely exclusionary. 
you know, uh-huh. even things like if you have a, maybe like a $1,500 add-on charge for like travel ball in some way to pay for that. But then what about the family paying for travel and hotels and equipment? And like, it's impossible. And I have anecdotally worked with families that have put other things aside that have so much importance on the stability of the family too, that just to pay for sport programming and in pursuit of like a higher level of competition. And that makes me sad. It really does. Yeah. And now that's real. That's very, very real. I mean, I'm one of those parents who has a whole budget line item just for travel ball with my daughter. And I see that that's a privilege. Yeah. I have to be able to, that my family has to be able to support that. And I think about it all the time. Yeah. All those other girls, because she plays softball, all those other girls who want to play softball, to have fun, to engage, to be a part of a team, to belong, don't have access to it. Yeah. Literally no access. And school districts that have just squeezed their programs, the squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. And I want to change that. I want to be part of the movement to change that, to just open up access more. And that pendulum is definitely swinging. And we're seeing that, for example, like with parks districts and opening up more opportunities or like things like the YMCA actually having like travel club volleyball through a YMCA Mm -hmm. that's funded properly and that there's scholarships and there's other opportunities. So I think that there's a place for both, but I think that as soon as somebody says, I can't go because I can't afford it, then we have to like pop up and pay attention and look at that situation. Absolutely. So that's a big deal. That's part of my focus. And uh, I think that there's lots of opportunity for more equitable distribution of scholarships at the collegiate level. So the person that I'm really valuing their research and writing right now, and I have been for a while, is Kirsten Hextrom. And she wrote about collegiate inequality in the name of her book, Special Admissions. I know that you read it too, Lisa. Mm -hmm. And we brought her as a speaker to the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports Annual Symposium we just had in October. And she really shows us how the playing field is not equal for admissions to many sports spaces in the collegiate world. Actually, her, I think the byline on her book says favoring white suburban athletes, certain. Yeah, it is. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And she's one of a few researchers who are actually being open about that and like saying what it is. Yeah. I mean, a lot of communities of color talk about it. We know about it and for it to be acknowledged on a larger scale like that is super important. It allows us to be seen and allows us to be heard and fully that like an ally is trying to understand the situation and do something about it is huge. And that we don't have to feel like we're just doing that alone. Yeah. And that white people like yourself <laughs> and others like are gonna put your privilege aside to advocate and to do the right thing, right? So that that means a lot to everyone. I can only speak to myself, but people and my colleagues and my friends, it means a lot. And to join in that, that it's not just our problem and that we have to figure it out. Yeah, and that my personal view on like how I enter an ally space is that I have to look at it every single day and that it's something that it's forever work. It's not just like, now I'm done. Kind of like, okay, I'm good. And really, it makes me humble. It creates a sense of humility in me. Like, okay, like, where have I been? Where have I come from? How did I get there? How do I continue in these spaces? I mean, for heaven's sakes, look at me. I'm at USC, right? Right. Coming from the south side of Chicago. (laughs) (laughs) I know. Yeah. Yeah. So... I think of it the difference between cultural competence and cultural humility, the, the nuance of those mm-hmm. two frameworks. And to me, cultural humility says that we have to keep working. There's never an end game. And cultural competence to me, it just the words and words matters seems from face value that like, okay, now I'm competent. Now I'm right. Done. Right. Like yeah. I have arrived and now I'm good. <laughs> yeah. which, is, yeah. which is goofy. Of course, we know that. So I hope that my work can impact social justice. I do. It already is. 
It already is. And I think that as an ally, you say it's daily work that you choose mm-hmm. to do. A lot of white folks don't need to and don't want to choose it. Like for those who are listening, like what does it take to be an ally? Like how do you take care of yourself to show up to that work? How do you do this day in and day out? What, what inspires you? Like I know there are days when you're like, I don't want to do this anymore. What keeps you going and what can you share for others who might consider like being an ally or like co-conspirator or like upping their game? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I like co-conspirator. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just one thing that I read all the time is Anti-Racism Daily. Have, do you know that one, ARD? Uh-uh. I think it's just mad. It's a book or a blog? Or it's a blog, it? yeah. And okay. a website, Anti-Racism Daily and the woman that started that. And I feel like I'm keeping on top of like, what are these discussions even? Mm. Because we get in, we get in this silo. It's like, okay, I'm working on social policy. I'm working on addictions and substance use disorder. And then, so you're not thinking like for long periods of time, you're in this like zone that is so funneled. But I have to like make sure that my side views are open all the time too. Mm-hmm. And that kind of helps me just keeping up with the news. It's a job, right? It's a job. And I do that with reading and listening to the news all the time. Sometimes I very intentionally turn it off, especially like in COVID. I was like, oh man, this is so hard. So, so hard for all of us. So I was like, I can't, I got to take a break. I'm not listening to anything for a week. Like that kind of mantra. I like intentionally surround myself and hang out with people that inspire me. And that includes you, Lisa. How often have we met and like talked and like we've never been in a physical space together. And yet, and yet to really totally reach out to people all the time, all the time. I use LinkedIn a lot. Mm -hmm. I love LinkedIn. Me too. Yeah. It's like, what are people doing? What's on their mind? And if I can like help with solving some of those or just like helping to resolve some of those issues. And I like to be in that space. Yeah. So being in the know, giving yourself information and access to it, connecting with other people, celebrating them. You're a big celebrator of other people. Like you hold celebrations all the time and you uplift other people. And I think, you know, when you do that, you uplift yourself and gives you energy to keep going, to keep doing work. Yeah. And that balance between this is hard work and this is not the hard work that's not serving me. So this balance of like, I'm going to put myself in this uncomfortable situation, but I also know that this one isn't just uncomfortable. It might cause me harm, i.e. detaching and disconnecting from the COVID news or when things get like the George Floyd video, like I couldn't watch it. Yeah. Things like that. Yeah. that doesn't mean I'm less of an advocate or ally. It means like I know for my own mental health to watch that, I'd be down in a dark space for a, a while. And I don't need to actually see it yeah. to know that it happened. And so examples like that, like us knowing what our boundaries and limits are about what's harm and, then, and what's a growth edge, mm-hmm. the difference. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And also seek mentorship, right? Yes. So I have a couple great mentors that literally I call them my mentors. One, I hope she's listening, Dr. Renee Smith Maddox. Mm-hmm. She's just like my go-to gal. She's just like so helpful. Anything I have, any questions I have about race and equality and diversity and belonging, she's just mm-hmm. my open source that we can have discussions that can get uncomfortable, but I know are going to be real and truthful. And that has been just a gift to me, an absolute gift. Yeah. So a mentor in so you know race the, discussions, a mentor in having race discussions mm-hmm. as an ally. Is that what you're talking about? As a white woman, how yes. a mentor specifically for that? Yes, absolutely. Wow. That's for me, amazing. that has helped greatly. And yeah. is Dr. Renee a woman of color? Yeah, she is. Yeah. Yeah. And she's fabulous. We teach at USC together. She's a person that I can ask anything. And also, I'm thinking about listeners right now. Being a mentor, like Mm. 
really being a mentor and being able to open yourselves up because a great mentor is vulnerable, very vulnerable. They don't have a wall around them either. And to have those kind of conversations literally about anything, especially in social work, is important. The other thing I love about the idea of being a mentor and also being a mentee is from a mentor to also become a sponsor. And I think that especially for people that don't have the same resources you have. So sponsorship in areas like I will bring you with me to conferences or to whatever space that normally you wouldn't be at the table. Right. So not just wow. not just talking, like we can talk all day, providing access to financial resources and opening up those doors that people never or have limited resources at that moment in their life. So I think mentorship is great, but I think it for great impact, we join it with sponsorship as well. That is amazing. I love hearing that. I mean, sponsorship from a financial, I mean, I want to be clear, from a financial perspective, but also from a representation perspective, right? Yeah. That exactly, like like you said, like bringing your mentee into a space they might not have access to, you're sponsoring their entrance into this space. Yeah. And whether there's a fee attached to that or not, like it's part of what the commitment is to be a mentor. Yeah. And to do that open eyes and open heart and knowing that that is what you're signing up for as informal or formal as it might be in different organizations. But I think that I love that. I love that. It's not just having chats every now and then, which are awesome. Which chats. Are, yeah. They're talking. The mentor knows that the mentee is asking questions to learn, yeah. not to harm. And that it's an opportunity for that connection and community building. And no, I love it. Oh, it's so good, Lisa. And you know that idea of burnout? When we all go through that at various levels throughout our careers as social workers. I can't imagine being a social worker and not having experienced that at some level. Yes. Because this yes. just really, we're talking, it's raw sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, and that's in the athletic arena too. Think of sexual assault and rape and tragedy through injury and making totally. transitions and like all that. But when we can be a mentor in those spaces and open up that world, it actually helps us. Yes. It sounds selfish, but it helps us overcome our own burnout because we see such joy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's symbiotic is what you're saying. Good word. Yeah. It's symbiotic, right? What we give, we receive. Yeah. Yeah. And there's lots of opportunities for social workers in that space to bring on more social workers that want to work in the sport and athletic arenas around the country and around the world. It's enormous. And I think that the more we spread the word about the subspecialty of social work that we do define as sports social work, the more we're going to have social workers engage understand their place, that everybody has a place in this subspecialty. You don't have to be an elite athlete or a former elite athlete or nothing. It's about our bodies, our place in our communities and how we come together. I see it as for every single social worker because we're concerned about communities. Yeah. Yeah. And systems, right? Yeah. Like I find a lot of times when I work, because my passion is working directly with with the elite athlete. Yeah. What I find is, oh, Lisa, my wife wants to talk to someone or mm-hmm. my sister wants to talk to someone or my, I would love my dad to talk yeah. to someone. So we know that all these relationships impact the athlete yeah. and they're, they're not in a silo. They're part of this familial system, this community system. My friend wants to talk to someone who's yeah. not an athlete. And so linking them to other resources and providing referrals and vetting those and making sure that anyone who wants to talk to someone in my sphere is the clinical work to that they can that that's accessible and I I take a lot of care in making sure that that happens because for a lot of them it's the first time the athlete themselves is talking to someone about their lives mm-hmm. their lives and then to want to also that invite someone close to them to also enter into a, a particular 
relationship like that. It's like, oh, wow, we're doing big things. This is huge. This is because then that person might tell someone and so on and so on. Victor, right? Yes. Yeah, it's the destigmatizing of accessing mental health, which has grown so greatly, especially because we have people like Simone Biles, right? Yes. And, And Naomi that get up there and say, this is who I am and this is what I need. So that's another way that this access and the windows wide open for us to have deep impact with individuals and communities. Yes. That's funny you mentioned that about family systems because much of the work I do in private practice is working with families who have a loved one who has an addiction. Mm. So it may not be the athlete that has the substance use disorder. It may be one of their family members and really expanding on the idea of as a family we work together so the family doesn't implode, which is difficult work because oftentimes there's a lot of luggage that goes with that. And what happened even in past generations about how we deal with addiction and how we use substances and substance abuse and working with the family as a unit to overcome that and get oh, that's, that's incredible work. And it takes everyone, every member of the family to help with that. It's not just yeah. the person who is misusing the substance. I mean, you and I both know that a lot of the more severe mental health diagnoses and um, the reasons people come to misuse substances is trauma. Mm-hmm. Trauma is involved there. Mm-hmm. And you speak about sort of the intergenerational impact. Mm-hmm. So intergenerational trauma, how that goes from grandfather, that whole part of the family tree to father to son. I'm just using males right now just because I did. But it takes one person to change that, to change their family tree. When they start healing, the one that can finally feel like they can or have access to the ability to do so is changing. I tell them their great grandkids' lives by doing mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. Because trauma has shaped and impacted their lives up to now. The intergenerational healing is going to impact generations to come. Right. So. That's incredible work that you're doing. It's not easy. That's not easy. It's not easy. It is so rewarding because there's so much change that happens and you realize the long range impact and working with families. That's, I feel like it's such a gift to be in those spaces. Like, thank you for inviting me, you know, like. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. The and privilege of being in on the, the, yeah. the dynamic and the conversations and the intimacy Love yeah. that. Yeah. You know, when I was doing case, I was doing a lot of in-home case management at the beginning of my career with some of the work I was doing. Did you ever do that in-home case management? Yes. I think we all do at some point. <laughs> <laughs> Probably, yeah. But I remember that feeling like, oh my gosh, I can't believe they said yes to this. That they would let somebody come in their house, see what's going on. And just like sit there on the couch and be totally open. And I always thought like, wow, I can't believe how much trust we're given. How much trust? So, And that we have to make sure that our colleagues and us who might not know how to handle that privilege mm-hmm. don't misuse that trust. Yeah, yeah. Right? Like I remember having lots of conversations with colleagues over the years, early in my career like that. So if a family invites you in, and they offer you food that you think is disgusting or you don't like, do you eat it? And a lot of times, right, you're in a home that might not be the home that you grew up in, the culture and customs and food might be different, ethnicities and race might be different, and you are privileged enough to enter into the space, how do you handle that? Just the fact that I use disgusting is how people would frame it. Right. And it's like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm having flashbacks right now of those times, but. Yeah, and really to go in with like a humble heart and just know that somebody said, yes, that's amazing. That's something that happens in clinical work for all of us, I know, where we're just like, wow, you're actually here in this extremely vulnerable space and you're trusting me. Really saying exactly I believe that. And you know what? We can actually, when we have supervising roles with social workers, like I do supervision for post-grads going for licensure. 
And, you know, to like really show them if they're not quite there yet, like what a place of honor that is to be in. Really. And to, That's great. And you know what? I think you'll probably identify, I know you will, this identification of you were there. We have to do everything we can, not just some of what we can. Mm, absolutely. Every, everything we can, because there's a tendency to just be like, well, that's enough. No. I think you have to keep going. I think that we're given that role and that responsibility. Is yes, it's a responsibility. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Well, on that vein, if there is an athlete who participates or competes mm-hmm. at any level, at any age, or a parent who is listening, mm-hmm. what kind of insight can we give them as they are considering talking to a clinician, a sport mm-hmm. therapist? Like, what can we tell them about what to expect? Like what their first couple sessions be like and mm-hmm. what are our responsibilities to someone who comes for us for care? Mm-hmm. Well, I think that most clinicians have longer first sessions. I know I do. Sometimes those sessions aren't like the clock is turned off for me, but it all depends on insurance guidelines and all that. But at a minimum, 45 minutes, wouldn't you say? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And I don't think that you have to hurry up and tell your story in 45 minutes at all, that it is really a coming together, even no matter how brief maybe of a clinician is saying like solution-focused brief therapy. And those are all, that's dictated, of course, by other policies and regulations from really the resource on who's paying. But I always think of terms of a coming together. And I think uh-huh. of being able to be heard and understood. And that's the role of the social worker and the therapist in that specific position that we know that everybody comes from a complex system. A family system is complex. There's never going to be anything that's really flat about it. So also understanding that we're impacted by every role that we're in, not just as the parent or not just as the athlete or the coach or the friend or the partner, whatever it is, we're impacted by multiple roles and we have multiple people we have to answer to in our lives. And so working through that as a thought partner, a therapist, I think as a thought partner, and then helping to overcome maybe some not so helpful ways about thinking about situations. Mm -hmm. So not helpful ways of thinking, not helpful ways of behavior, not helpful ways of viewing a system. I think that's what it is. I think that the relationship is the most important part in coming together. And you know what else I'd say? It's okay totally to change therapists. Mm -hmm. If -hmm. you're not jiving with your therapist, Mm -hmm. like you're just not getting it, it's totally okay to say, you know what? I really appreciate your time. I get it. I'm going to actually seek help elsewhere mm-hmm. and that's and that is totally okay in the same way that in all of our lives we gravitate towards certain energies i guess you call them or certain types of people and sometimes it's more <laughs> helpful to change therapists than it is to just stay and think that you're going to get something out of it that you're not going to get out of it no that's great and isn't that a mirror experience of how all relationships should go true that true. we feel like we can leave it What I tell folks who are in that position of wanting to change or come to me as a friend or say like my therapist isn't doing this or isn't doing that, I say, well, do they know that? Mm. Do they know that they're not meeting your need there or Mm -hmm. your expectation? Have you had a conversation with them about it? Mm -hmm. Like I would want that to happen in any any relationship before you want to end it. Yeah. To try to understand or explain yourself. And if you don't feel good about how that goes, then okay, you try. Now we can we can make yeah. an exit or say yeah. goodbye respectfully and move on. And maybe even give feedback. Like, yeah. this is, I tried to tell you this. This is how I felt when it happened. I'm sorry, this is no longer working for me. I wish you all the best. Bye. Like, yeah. that's what I would want anyone I know to be able to say in any relationships, whether it's a client or therapist. So I think that's a very, a very good point. I love the relationship part that you're, you're engaging in a objective, mutually respectful confidential private relationship that's just about you. You don't have to reciprocate except by communication, showing up, agreeing to parameters of the fee, 
the amount, if there is one, the frequency, insurance, stuff like that, that you're going to be responsible for that part. And then we can have a conversation. I met a new athlete in our first session. And I was like, so before we get started, do you have any questions for me? Mm-hmm. You know, and so I tried to equal that power dynamics, try to like make it a little bit more even because it's naturally inherent that we have more power and wanted to even it out. And he's like, oh, oh, I thought you were going to ask me a bunch of questions. <laughs> I'm like, I can't. I can't and I will and I have a bunch. He's like, I just thought that you were, this is the interesting part. I just thought you were here to dig deep into my dark spaces and try to like go there quick. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for saying that. Let me tell you how it really is. A lot of people have that stereotype or belief or they see it on TV or whatever. So no, I think those are all really, really great. The relationship is super important. I love that you open up with that. Do you have any questions for me? I love that. I also think that just like you and I do in our world, we seek objective feedback and objective input. And sometimes we can't get that if we're 100% seeking someone that's just like me. And so, so being open to work with people that are not like you, I think is important as well at times. So for instance, there's a famous, famous social worker that was the leader of the International Association of Schools of Social Work that she just passed away. She was from India. And I always watched her work and listened and whenever I could be in the same geographic space with her, I would because she was so different from me. So different. And I really wanted to like learn her perspective. I think that can help in therapy too at times that really seek people Mm -hmm. So if you're looking for a thought partner, I love the idea of thought partners and working through an issue and, or a situation or a circumstance, sometimes it takes somebody that's totally different too. Uh-huh. And I think that sometimes it's easier to go with somebody that we think is just like us and they'll get us and that like that. But uh-huh. sometimes there can be some growth when it comes from outside. Yeah. And that there has to be a a level of safety and trust that that effort can be seen as something positive for both parties. Yeah. You know, I think that goes for the therapist. It's funny too. Like there's a lot of us who want to stay comfortable and we don't want to like treat someone who's that different from us. Right. Or or, like offer the representation. Like for me as a woman of color, I would want all people of color, if they feel comfortable with someone like me to have access to me. Yeah. And we're going to find differences and similarities even in that for whatever reason. Yeah. Like yeah. just because we're folks of color, we come from different families, different ethnicities, different experiences. Not all people of color are the same, okay. et cetera. Yeah. And so like really delving into that and understanding it both sides. Because I'm pretty... I use self-disclosure a lot in my work to connect, to know that you're speaking with a human, You know that we're two humans in a space sharing it. But my job is to connect and give you the opportunity, like you said, to be heard, be seen, Mm -hmm. be validated for your experience, whatever that might be. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point that bringing it from the (laughs) therapist point of view too, to make sure that, that we're making sure we are available to lots of different types of people. Right. So yeah. See, we learn every day to keep focused on that because it is easy to fall into these patterns. When I started my work with addictions, it was always working with the individual that came to me that was struggling with addiction. And that kind of like how you said with the person that you were serving then said, well, what about my mom? Or what about, oh, my partner wants to come in. Or that's what happened to me with in the addiction space with athletes. It was, Mm. okay, so the family's imploding over here. We're doing our work in our individual sessions, but all these people don't have access. They don't even know what's going on. They have their generational trauma that's impacting how they view substance use disorder and then how they behave because of it. And I had to do the shift there. That was a couple of years ago, a shift that then I worked with, I worked with the families to keep them from imploding. Yes, because something like that, substance abuse, misuse, addiction, as well as mental health disorders and mental illness. It's not a thing that impacts just one person. It impacts the whole family and and their communities and their systems that they're involved in. So again, that's huge, incredible work. Amazing. (laughs) I'm laughing because I'm like, 
I wouldn't do it right now at this stage of my career. So I, I respect and like <laughs> love that you're doing it. So I'm sending you positive vibes and love and hugs every day that you do this work because it's essential and important. Oh, it's, it actually is so life-affirming. It's fabulous. Social work affirming, therapist affirming. You know, when I was at McDill, bring it back to that, part of my work was with the, it was called ADAPT, Alcohol Drug Abuse Prevention. Oh, yeah. uh-huh. ADAPT. Yeah. There's ADAPTs in like many cities, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. And at first I was like, no, in my head, of course, no way, I don't want to do that. That's going to be, I can't, no, 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 I can't do that. (laughs) And of course, then you like pitch up because you have to. And it was awesome. It was so awesome. And I had no idea. And a lot of times that'll happen in the classroom with new social work students. I only teach graduate level and doctoral level, not BSW, but they'll get their internship and they're like, oh. Oh, I can't do this. I don't want to do this. And I always say, like, open yourself up because you never know. I thought I only wanted to be a school social worker. That was, I'm going back to school. I went back. My undergrad is in French language and literature, my first undergrad. And then I was like, okay, so a lot of things happened that I fell into social work. Specifically, I was in South Africa and I saw really suffering and poverty, even though I grew up in mm-hmm. Chicago in an urban setting mm-hmm. that like jarred my soul mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And then I lived in Australia for a long time and just seeing like, again, coming in with a new set of eyes, like, whoa, I had no idea, like level of suffering that yeah. comes from poverty. Yeah. It's more hidden in the places that I lived. So it was there, but yeah. it was, you know. Well, international poverty is very different than domestic poverty. Yeah. It's yeah. so different. It looks different. The suffering, there's suffering with all, all humanity that are living in those situations. Anyway, so that got me into the professional realm of social work because I was working in the spaces with no, absolutely no academic credibility. Just a soul that likes <laughs> I don't know why that magnet brought me there, but... Yeah, that magnet. Yeah. That magnet. That so, magnet. The same thing with new students that are saying, like, I don't, I don't think I can do that. Just, I just say, just say yes. Open up and see how it goes. Yeah. I love it. Just say yes. Just say yes. <laughs> yeah. I so appreciated our conversation. I know I've asked you a lot of questions. I always want to make sure that the person I'm speaking to gets a chance to say anything that you want that we didn't touch on that you want to make sure you leave the space with contributing to it or sharing about it anything about athletes social work anyone who might be listening who might be an up-and-coming provider or social work who wants to work with athletes Mm -hmm. or again the athlete themselves or a parent any final last words that you'd like to share yes And that is for any professional social worker or ally of the social work profession, please join us with the Alliance of Social Workers and Sports because we need you. We're a great organization. It's a member-driven organization. So it's really about networking and responding to the needs of our members, which is a response to the needs of our communities. So everybody's welcome to this table. And we are interdisciplinary because we believe in an approach that says we need all the different disciplines to impact a better outcome. So we become transdisciplinary where we're creating something new that could never have happened unless we all came together from a different perspective. And we have lots of psychologists and sociologists and kinesiologists and other ologists off the top of my head, we have medical providers and it's not just academics. As a matter of fact, it's mostly, I believe it's mostly providers and social workers in the field. There's lots of arenas for opportunity and topics we didn't even like really touch on today. And like, obviously in the mental health arena with things like disordered eating and with things like sexual trauma that happens throughout our communities not only in professional spaces and collegiate spaces, but we can impact that. And the work of following those leaders like Brenda Tracy in that arena and helping her to do the work that she has been just breaking down barriers about sexual trauma in the athletic arena. Lots of different areas. There's things like working with veterans and working with the military. 
and to build stronger, stronger individuals and stronger communities. And there's a need for social workers to, to step up for that. We can there's lots of opportunity for anybody that wants to join in. For parents and people that are receiving services, we're an excellent resource for evidence-based and evidence-informed practice. We have lots of clinicians on our clinicians list. We are the leader, the absolute global leader, international leader in clinical sports social work. And we can help in any way. And we have an executive board that's ready to answer questions, give resources, and provide information. So it is just a pleasure to be in that position. And I feel really, really lucky and blessed to be able to even say that. Oh, thank you. That's a huge resource. I think even looking at the website gives a lot of resources, right? There's resources, referrals, articles, podcasts, Mm -hmm. interviews that Mm -hmm. anyone can access, take a look at it. And Stacey, as a executive leader, and as part of the executive committee, her and her colleagues are always available. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's how she and I met. I mean, like I remember reaching out to her. I was like, Stacy, I like checked in on the, the symposium. It was awesome. Can I talk to you some more? And she was always very open until this day, still remains very open to discussing anything, resources, referral topics. Ooh. So I just appreciate your open heart and your generosity and all the work that you're doing. It's really inspiring and rejuvenating for me. It gives me lots of energy. You've helped me enter my flow state. You know, I'm I'm very, very just in a a nice rhythm right now to carry out the rest of my day. So thank you for your energy, your spirit and your time. And just really appreciate you being here with me, Stacey. Any time at all. Big hugs. Love you lots. Love you too. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. One of my favorite things about our Sportsypreneur content platform is the opportunity to chat with amazing people in and around the world of sports. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to connect more, hit us up on Instagram at Sports Epreneur. Thank you for listening to this CadSource production, the Sports Epreneur podcast, the podcast where sports and entrepreneurship collide. Sports Epreneur is a content platform, a collaborative team, and a marketing brand that is all about showcasing leaders and difference makers in and around the world of sports. While we create our own content, we also create content with you. This includes collaborative content and exclusive content for your brand. Think podcast, blog, social media, and overall content strategy. Our sports content marketing team is specifically niche for those in the sports industry. That includes sports businesses, athletes, managers, coaches, trainers, entrepreneurs, and business leaders in the sports market. The bottom line is we want to help with your sports-related brand, your content marketing, and your story. Connect with us on Instagram at sportsepreneur or find us online at sportsepreneur.com. Sportsypreneur, the content platform where sports and entrepreneurship collide.